0: Today's teaching text comes from Philippians 3 7 through 21. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Now that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hello, Trinity Grace Church. Good morning. I want to start with a couple of questions for us. Can you be a Christian and vote for Trump? Can you be a Christian and vote for Biden? Are you already rolling your eyes? I'm going to keep going. Uh, what about abortion, sexual ethics, uh, religious liberty? What about caring for the poor or the immigrant or, or the planet? What about whataboutism? Um How about this? Can you respect and support law enforcement and believe our country suffers from systemic racism and needs police reform? Can you care deeply about the life of the unborn and the life of mothers facing nearly impossible choices? What if if you want business to create opportunity and generate wealth But you think we also have to protect our environment for future generations. How about this one? Are the problems that we face right now in our world primarily the result of personal responsibility or of broken systems uh, or some blend of both? How about this? In a leader, should character matter more or should their policies matter most? Here's another one. Do do you think that Christians should be involved in politics because it represents the collective lives of our communities and neighbors, or Christians shouldn't be involved in politics because we should should be focused on Jesus, and politics have such potential to divide? Uh, What have I said already that irritates you, that makes you roll your eyes? What do you wish already that I would have mentioned? Pastor Corey from Reconcile, who spoke for us last week, was imagining a church where someone in a Black Lives Matter shirt could sit next to someone in a MAGA hat and worship together. If they could sit together and they could sing together, could they love each other? Is that that possible? Jesus' group of 12 disciples uh, had a political zealot uh, who, who wanted violently to drive out Roman occupiers, and a tax collector who was collecting money for Rome from his neighbors and family. So total opposite ends of the political spectrum. They ate at the same table. They walked through the streets with Christ. But maybe our divisions are different. We can, we can sometimes suffer from this uh, chronological bias uh, and assume that uh, our challenges are the most intense uh, that that any era has ever faced our, our, our I will say though if we're honest our moment in history does have some unique developments um, it's it's no one will argue that it's a relatively new phenomenon that that uh, you could be you know in three minutes you could be scrolling through your phone and you see a post about wildfires in, in California and then you see a post about uh, Trump saying that his administration has triumphed over COVID, but the numbers seem to still be spiking. And you see a post about a scandal involving uh, Joe Biden's son, or you see a post about a friend who's on vacation, and then right beside it, a post from a friend who's just lost a parent and is, in, is grieving. You, you, you see a post about uh, a, another shooting of a black man at the hands of police, uh, uh, Walter Wallace Jr. in, in Philly this week, or, or you see a post about packing the Supreme Court as political retribution and uh, apparently there's a war going on in a- Azerbaijan and oh, this new Netflix show is, is about to begin next week and, and all of it and just like it, it, just as your feed goes past your eyes in just a couple of minutes, all these things are flooding at you. It seems impossible to think and feel appropriately about, about all of that. But then also we have this other problem where maybe our our posts have been so dialed in by by the internet algorithms that we actually only see certain posts that we're likely to agree with and and so we're scrolling through and we we see something that comes from a, a, another source that's outside of that carefully curated algorithm of stuff that we're already likely to agree with and we just can't Fathom how anyone doesn't see things as clearly as we see them, doesn't understand at base level what our country needs, who should win this election, and and, and where we need to go. Jocelyn uh, Kiley, uh, Associate Director of Research at the Pew Research Center, said political polarization is more intense now than at any point in modern history. Nearly 80% of Americans now have just a few or no friends at all across the aisle, according to Pew Pew Research, and the animosity goes both ways. Another recent poll by Public Religion uh, Research Institute shows that 8 in 10 Republicans believe the Democratic Party has been taken over by socialists, while 8 in 10 Democrats believe the Republican Party has been taken over by racists. The report is aptly named Dueling Realities. If you want to look at those uh, studies and where they're referenced, were on All Things Considered on National Public Radio uh, um on, on October 27th, maybe you heard a similar story when you watched the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma, that talks about how we've gotten to this polarized moment and how the algorithms from social media is, is directing us to, to news that we're only primarily going to agree, agree with. Here's the reality. On Tuesday, if you weren't aware, if you've been living uh, under a rock somewhere, we have a presidential election. We have a chance to use this, this precious right that is afforded to us by our Constitution to choose our next president. And it's not without controversy. It's not without scandal. It's not without question. Uh, but I hope that we will choose to use this right. Um, I, I say that as a pastor. I also just say that as your friend. But, but what guides our vote? I hope it won't surprise you to know, and I'm not complaining about this, but I hope it won't surprise you to know that I have gotten uh, concerned calls and emails full of strong feelings from people in our church telling me that our church is leaning too far left. Also, I've gotten concerned calls and emails telling me that our church is not progressive enough or uh, that we should avoid political rhetoric uh, whatsoever and just not get into it at all. As a church on Wednesdays, we've been fasting and praying for our nation, uh, for for the election. But I've been on the on the zooms, and not everyone is praying for the same thing. So here we are, election week, and. Uh, as you probably noticed when we heard the teaching text read, uh, we're taking a break from looking at the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So, so t- today I, I want to do this sort of standalone um, re- reflection on what it means to be citizens of heaven and strangers on the earth. How do we live as followers of Jesus in these politically divided times? H- how do we talk? about issues that matter to us deeply, but that people we love see differently than us? How do we process anxiety we may be feeling about, about the election or about the state of our world? So, I said we're taking a break from the Sermon on the Mount. It's true. Well, We're going to be looking at this passage that was read from Philippians 3, where, where Paul says explicitly that our citizenship is in heaven. However, I do want to say up front that maybe we shouldn't look at it exactly like we're taking a break from the Sermon on the Mount. Because I think the Sermon on the Mount is sort of Jesus in long form saying what Paul says in summary right here, that our citizenship is in heaven, right? Because Paul's, of course, not saying our citizenship in heaven, that means that um, we ignore what's happening around us because we have our ticket stamped for the afterlife and we're just waiting until God sorts all this out and we get to go to paradise in heaven. He's saying we are learning right now to live with our deepest commitment being to God and His kingdom. And that's what Jesus is saying also in long form In the Sermon on the Mount, to live in union with Jesus is to come to live in the realized kingdom of God. That's how he taught his disciples to pray, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. It means means something profound for all areas of our life now and in the age to come. So... (laughs) To set your mind at ease, we're obviously not going to cover everything in, in one week. We're not going to get anywhere near being able to address all the questions or concerns or passions or ideas or controversies that have been raised uh, in the last couple of months or in this tense election year. But but I hope we can look at some frameworks for how we live as followers of Jesus that will that will actually truly help us in these politically divided times. So The specifics, of course, uh, were different, but the Apostle Paul wrote the words of this letter to a city that was very politically divided as as well. Philippi um, was, was a Roman colony, like actually most of the known world at that point, and there would have been many in this old Greek city who absolutely despised the new Roman rule. Uh, but at the same time, the city held a large population of, of the families of retired Roman soldiers. And so if, if you want to think about it, Philippi was like a city that contained the political divide between like the center of Park Slope and the center of Staten Island, right? There's just a different vibe, b- b- bottom line. In fact, in 42 B.C., about a century before Paul came to town and this letter was written, Philippi had been the site of this great battle in the Roman Civil War, right? After the assassination of Julius Caesar, there was a struggle for power. And the victorious uh, generals, Antony and Octavian, who become Caesar Augustus, they, they they win. And now they have this massive Roman army and no more war to fight. And so they don't want to bring the soldiers back to Rome. That's a sort of dangerous situation to get into. And, and, and so they settle. This area, Philippi, where the battle had been fought, and the areas around it as a Roman colony. So it's a short sail across the narrowest part of the Adriatic Sea, and and you're in Rome, so it's sort of far enough away uh, to be safe, but still feel like you're very much a part of the Roman Empire and and, and the, the majesty. So the city at the time of this letter being received, would would have been full of the descendants of of these Greek families who who despised this Latin-speaking Roman occupiers who had come in, but also the families of these Roman soldiers who had bled and died to make this a a, a, a part of the Roman Empire. So there were many who loved the benefits of Roman rule and many who felt left out of its power structures. And to this newly formed... (laughs) City church, gathering in homes, trying to sort out what it means to live the way of Jesus in these contested, conflicted times. Paul writes about following Jesus. Here's how you follow Jesus in a divided world. And honestly, it wasn't just the outside culture that they were up against. There, there, was, there was division within the church as well. Like the, you, you see this over and over in the New Testament, trying to sort out, right? There were some new believers who thought, actually, if you're a Christian, you've come part of the way, but you have to go all the way to becoming fully Jewish. You have to keep the Torah. You have to be circumcised. You have to eat with these dietary restrictions. And there were others who thought, no, that's a pollution of the gospel. We have everything that we need in the person of Christ. And you see this tension being worked out on the pages. So Paul writes this short letter from prison contested himself and at the heart of it we had this section uh, that we read just a few moments ago and I want to say that it gives us it gives us a pledge of allegiance as followers of Jesus a pledge of allegiance a plan for living and a promise for our future and uh, those all start with p I'm not just showing off Well, but they do. And so let's let's get into it. So first, a pledge of allegiance. Early in the letter, um, Paul's been writing about Christ And he's been showing all, actually, in Philippians 2, all that Christ let go of to come and live and die and offer us life with God in God's kingdom now and forever. In Philippians 2, he said, who being, he's talking about Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And it says, he came in the form of a servant. So uh, he's shown us how Jesus did that. And now Paul is showing us how in his own life he has done that. He's just walked through and right before the passage that we read just a minute ago, he's walked through everything in his life that made him distinct, that he would have accredited to himself as an accomplishment that would have been accredited to him as privilege in the world that he had grown up with. And he says he totally reevaluates all of that in light of his relationship with Jesus. This is how he says it. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Something had come into Paul's life that made every other advantage, every other privilege he held either by birth or accomplishment seem like garbage compared to knowing what he says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. The joy, the freedom, the life, the, f- the future promise of knowing Christ had changed the value of everything in his life that came before that. Now, uh, we we know Paul didn't stop being some of those things that he had just listened. He says he counts them all lost, but he didn't stop being some of those things just because he considered them so much less garbage compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He still had training as a rabbi, and he used that training. Over and over, he would go into a city, and he would go into the synagogue, and he would speak with the the Jewish believers that he met there, and he would reason with them about Christ. He still benefited as a Roman citizen in his travels. Later, when he has to appear, he's been arrested. And he has to appear in court. He, he makes reference to being a Roman citizen. But he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. The word for garbage there is this Greek word, skibala, and it's a vulgar word. Uh, Basically, it means straight up street filth or crap. The, the, The trouble is, we read this and we think Paul is some special case. Uh, that, that, you know, he, he's different. He's unrealistic for the rest of us as followers of Jesus. But here's the deal. This is what it means to receive Christ's salvation and to live as a follower of Jesus. Jesus is not a nice addition to our lives. He is our life. So many Christians are, are kind of, of miserable in their lives, and they wonder why they have such a diminished experience compared to what they hear described in, in the text of Scripture. And they're like, "Is this really all there is?" But but basically, they've just tried to add Jesus on as, as like a once a, a, a week life coach or as a nice addition to all the other things that are really primary in, in their life. But Paul is giving us the pledge of allegiance for a follower of Jesus. That our first love, our first allegiance is to Christ. It's not to Rome or to Philippi or to America or to the Democrats, or to the Republicans. It's not even to ourselves. And all of the things that make us special, as important as any of those things are, our first love, our first allegiance is to Christ. And let me tell you this, flat out, there is no offer of salvation in the New Testament where you receive Jesus as Savior and do not receive Jesus as King. Do not receive Jesus as Lord. The rallying cry of the first followers of Jesus is Jesus is king in a world where Caesar ruled. Paul is telling us quite clearly, unequivocally, that Jesus has become the foundation of his primary identity. And this is not a special case for the apostle. As Christians, we forfeit the right We forfeit the right, hear that Americans, to put anything above Jesus in our lives. This means His salvation, apprenticing apprenticing under Christ as disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit, is our very life. Our union with Christ is the defining reality of our lives. Here's the thing. Christianity without Jesus first is painful, it's confusing, and it just doesn't work. So if your work is first... It's painful, it's confusing, it doesn't work. If your family is first, it's painful, it's confusing, it doesn't work. If your political party is first, if your sexuality is first, if your racial identity is first, if your comfort is first, if your desire to be entertained is first, if having security or status or money or possessions is first... It's painful, it's confusing because it doesn't work. And as a matter of fact, if any of those things are first, you're something other than a Christian. Or you're not living as a Christian and you need to promptly admit that in confession and turn in your hearts. Calling ourselves Christians, if Christ does not have our primary allegiance, is a fraud. I think it's so important (laughs) It's so important to remember that the label Christian, it was first used by the observing community, those who were watching their lives in Antioch. And they said, these people look like little Christs. Being Christian wasn't something you got to self-apply. It was a label other people put on you because you looked like Jesus in your life. It wasn't something you got to self-apply. There's a lot that goes under the Christian label in our country right now, and it has nothing to do with Jesus. It is a fraud. Now, we remember grace, of course, right? We we may fail to live with Jesus first over and over again. We we see this in the lives of the disciples who walked with Jesus, right? Uh, they, they they made this mistake. We we see this in a communal way in the churches that are addressed in 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 Revelation. There's these letters to the churches, these communities, and they had gotten things misaligned. They had put something else. They had put something else first. But the re- response was repentance. Repentance, confessing that misalignment, putting Jesus back in the proper place, right? Returning, if you want, to our first love. But here's the deal. If we're still negotiating what our first love is, then perhaps we've never truly heard and accepted Jesus' invitation in the first place. Now, I said we're going to talk about some frameworks this morning, but this one is absolutely the most important. You have to search your life and ask, is Jesus first? And here's the thing. I don't mean to be unkind, but I don't care at all. If you can give the right answer, especially in a, ch- in a church setting, I mean search your life for the answer, not what comes out of your lips, but what are you enmeshed with? What has your heart? What do you truly care the most about? What has your first love? All right, because this begins to relate to our, our primary identity, what we have our deepest hope in. I have a lot of respect for uh, Pastor Rich Velotas from New Life in Queens. And uh, he, he was talking a while back about his pastoral work uh, around this idea of primary, primary, primary identity and enmeshment in his congregation and, and spe- specifically related to this political moment that we're in. I love what he says uh, about how he sees his, his role. He says, people are so enmeshed. That it's hard to distinguish political figures from themselves. The domino effect of enmeshment looks like this. To critique the president or any political leader is to to critique the party I align with. To To critique the party is to critique the values I hold dear. To critique the values I hold dear is to critique my vision of a flourishing world. To critique my vision of a world that flourishes is to critique my understanding of God. To to critique my understanding of God is to critique me at the deepest center. It makes sense why people get defensive when their political leader is criticized. So then, when the candidate you support is criticized and you feel deep anger and defensiveness, the question we need to ask is, why am I so defensive? Have I confused my core identity with the person or party I support? The painful truth of this is, is if a political leader is beyond genuine critique in your mind, the political leader has taken on a godlike status, and there's a command or two that has something to say about that. We have to be honest about our heart's enmeshment. Now, this, this is uh, challenging, right? Because in our two party system, any critique of one leader is often seen as uh, you know an implicit endorsement of the other uh, of the other leader and this is a massive challenge for followers of Jesus because neither political party in America perfectly lines up with the kingdom of God uh, and so our, our first allegiance is to Christ and, and if that's true that means we need to be able to offer critique on both sides neither you know we don't just completely accept any party line in a two party system now I'm also, I want to say this, I, we're not so naive as to think that, that if we as followers of Jesus were just, you know, truly committed to Christ, we wouldn't, you know, we would think the same on, on every issue. That's not what I'm saying. There's, there's lots of realities that shape our formation, that help us arrive at the opinions that we hold dear. But this, no matter what, is a framework that we have to return to as followers of Jesus. My first love is Christ. My greatest hope is Christ and his kingdom, not in lip service, but in the true, like, roots of my heart. this, this, This allegiance, it's not going to keep us from disagreeing, but I think it can keep us from eviscerating one another when we do disagree. I think it can keep us on some level from, from, from quaking at our very core when someone that we love thinks differently than we do about an important issue. Right In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, remember this long-form picture of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. There's, there's something that falls out from a priority of putting God first. And when we do that as well, we see that the king in this kingdom, this Jesus, is a man who, at the heart of the story, died on a cross for all of those who agreed with him. No. Died on a cross for his enemies. For those who were spitting on him. For those who were tearing up and dividing his clothes. For those whose hearts were so hardened against him that they just totally reviled him and thought of him as less than human they had labeled and dismissed and they nailed that label over his head in mockery seek first this kingdom and the rest of your life will fall out from there paul puts it i want to know christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, a man who died for his enemies, to participate in that type of life, becoming like him in his death. Why? How? And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Church, this is our citizenship. Hebrews 11 reinforces this reality. We are strangers on the earth, citizens in heaven, strangers on the earth. Paul writes, uh, uh, Peter, uh, the other apostle, writes to the church that we live like far exiles, strangers on the earth. Our first allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. And you have to hear that, and then you have to not hear me saying what I'm not saying. I can't state clearly enough. This doesn't mean that we withdraw from engagement with our world and we just wait for heaven. It means that for us, nothing compares to Christ and to the hope we have in him. And this points us to a plan for Living. In this election season, I just want to so simply call you to this, that that you cultivate friendship with Jesus, that you cultivate a regular putting of Christ in the first place in your life, and then that you actively have hope in the resurrection cultivate this election season, on Tuesday, this week, this month, this year, cultivate friendship with Jesus and regularly reassert your hope in the resurrection of Christ. To to cultivate your friendship with Christ, I, I don't mean something terribly mysterious. I mean, realign your heart each day with Jesus. Go to Him in prayer. Go to Him in the Word. Go to Him in community. Spend time in worship. Spend time enjoying the presence of Jesus. Ask Christ to direct your outlook to direct your engagement, to direct how you care and how you express the care you have about political issues that are really important in our world. And then have hope ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus. This does a couple of things. One, it melts our heart's pride. Uh, and it fills them with love, even for those who disagree with us. It fills us with the potential for love, for even our enemies. As impossible as that sometimes feel, and it reminds us that nothing is past changing if God gets involved. Right? The story that we celebrate, the story of our redemption, is He was dead on Friday and He was raised on Sunday, and the stone was rolled away. So, what in our world are we looking to be changed that is more substantial than death? That's the end of the story, and yet Jesus took it from a period to a comma cultivating our friendship with Jesus it melts our heart it reorients our pride it moves us in love towards our neighbor and then it puts us in a place where our primary hope is in a resurrection that's going to take hold in our communities now but is ultimately something we're looking for right the already and the not yet reality the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. So we look at what this union with Jesus and this hope in his resurrection does in Paul's heart. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but what do I do? But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of, uh, of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to that we have already attained. Cultivating friendship with Jesus, cultivating hope in his resurrection for Paul, it it puts him in the place where he's willing to admit that he has a long way to go. Are we willing to admit we don't understand it all? We're not fully there. We haven't arrived. Are we willing to do what Paul is doing here? He gives up all hope of a better past. I can't do anything, one ounce, to change what has already happened. I'm willing to admit I have a long way to go. I'm willing to give up all hope of a better past. I'm willing to make the most of each moment to be conformed to the love of God. It's like a runner straining towards the finish line. That's how Paul describes the longing. He is to be conformed in his own heart. A long way to go to be conformed in his own heart to the love of Christ. I love what he says in there. (laughs) We even have hope that if someone has a different view than us, we can allow God to change them. If one of you has a different view on this, the apostle with the authority of Christ coming to tell him, this is how you think and live in a world. He says, if you have a different view, God can change your mind on that. It's not on me to hammer you until you agree with my perspective. And then I love what he says. Join together in following my opinions. Join together in following my curated tweets. No, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. If you don't follow what I'm saying, watch how I'm living. Don't follow my tweets. Follow my life. That is such a profound, the integrity of that in our world is so so important. Like no matter how well you can articulate your, your opinions and eviscerate someone who disagrees with you, what does your life look like? How are you actually living? What are the secret places of your life revealing? And Paul goes on he says, there are many things that can derail you out of this relational center. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, extending himself in the person of Jesus to bring us in and make us family by the power of his Holy Spirit. There are many things that can derail you from your first allegiance, this union with a God who is love and love for other people, but very few things that derail you are as powerful as your own appetites. All the problems in the world, all this country needs, all that we need to see change, and I'm unwilling to look at how often it's my own pride, my own appetites that li- leads me not to live up to even the smallest amount of my own ideals. For, Paul says, "For as, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Right? That's our accusation to those who are different than us. You're totally against what God wants. You're totally against what's right in the world. Their destiny is destruction. What does it say? Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. They have misaligned the deepest priority of their life. And it is wreaking havoc. As high-minded as we can be in our ideals, we are often drawn in our real allegiance back to the baseline of self. And we find actually our our politics center around our wallets, our politics center around our ego being right, our our politics center around our appetites, our disdain for people who think and, and live differently than us. But we have to remember, right, our allegiance to Jesus is not because we surveyed every possible religious choice and we landed on the right one. Our allegiance to Jesus is because Christ came to us when we were sprinting the other way and offered us the embrace of a loving God who forgives us and says, I wiped the past clean so that I can embrace you into my family, so that I can call you son, daughter, beloved, no matter what label you have worn. For us and for our enemies. Jesus has invited us to a, an abundant life. He's staked his integrity on it. Come to me, I'll give you life and give it to you to the full. And it's directed by something more than just our appetites. More than just our immediate sense of what we need most. Or our immediate sense even of what we think the world needs most. The Gospel writer John, at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life, he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Christ gives us a plan for living rooted in love. It bases our our allegiance in something that transcends America's two-party system. It means, I think that it means we can offer loving critique of both sides and we have to know that we might not be seeing it perfectly. We might not be seeing the full picture. We have to admit that. We can say there is much wrong in this world and my own heart needs profound healing. And I think it means that we can make great sacrifices of love because we have a promise of our future. It's a complicated week many layers here. And we've already been at this for a while. We're, we're, we're landing the plane here. But will you just hang with me for, for one moment as, as, we, as we hear this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Jesus is, inv- is inviting us as a people of the resurrection, to live with that hope now, even as we work for the renewal of the world in the future. Your citizenship is in heaven, so it is okay to feel like a stranger on the earth. Our fate, I want to tell you this, church, our fate is not sealed up by this election, even though this election matters. Your worth is not decided by who agrees with you and who doesn't. The way of hate, the way of division is an easy way to find, but it never gives us what our hearts are longing for. I want you to bring your questions, bring your opinions, bring your concerns. I want you to drag them through your primary allegiance to Christ. The things that you, that, that's coming out, you have to uh, bring your opinions, bring your questions, bring your passions, bring your concerns, and make them stand in front of Jesus. He's first. He's first. Make them show up before Christ. And then we have to remember that wherever we land, because there's a bunch of things that, that, that inform our formation, wherever you land, remember you can be politically engaged, even in America, even in a two-party system, and not fall into the partisan frenzy and, and the labeling and dismissing that goes on. There are many issues that should matter to us deeply that should be informed by our faith, that should be filtered through our primary allegiance to Christ, by our faith, hope, and love. But there is a limit as well as to what we can do as a part of this overarching system. And I'm going to close with a couple of things. My friend Mike, Michael Weir, I love what he says here, your vote is not an unmediated expression of your identity. Your vote is a choice between options you did not choose yourself. If you view your vote as an unmediated, pure expression of your will, it can be debilitating. Whether you are a Christian or not, simply as a matter of the fact that we have uh, consciences and convictions and to view political choices in such a way threatens the integrity of the human person. Church, this is it. This is election week and it matters I hope, I hope if you are able to, and you haven't already, that, that you will vote. Huh? But I hope that this morning has been a reminder of where our t- true and deepest hope is, where our, our primary identity I- I- is rooted. We can be deeply, lovingly engaged, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers on the earth. I want to give you Michael Weir one more time as you prepare to vote this week. I, lo- I love what he says here. Our vote should be intended toward the greatest flourishing of our community. Our vote should be intended toward the good of our neighbors as best we can see it, in consultation with Scripture, Christian tradition, fellow Christians, and our neighbors themselves. We take our vote seriously, but we also recognize that we are a part of a body politic, and we recognize voting for what it is. And we understand that in all but the rarest circumstances, and we should be hesitant to suggest what the exceptions are in an unequivocal manner, there is no single Christian way to vote. My, my principal concern is that Christians vote with faithfulness in mind, with prayer that intends to expose their heart to God and, them, and themselves rather than cover it up, and with a moral burden that is rightly sized and rightly situated. Seek to be faithful with what you have in the circumstances you have been given and then rest in Christ. Then rest in Christ. Church, our first allegiance is to Jesus. Our way of life is shaped by Christ. Our hope for the future is rooted in Christ. So let's take a deep breath and come to the table of communion. Heavenly Father, I pray for your church. I pray in the name of Jesus that we could be truly, lovingly, intentionally, passionately engaged in the matters of our world, even in the political system of our country, but that our hearts ultimately are first finding their allegiance in you, Jesus. Our way of life is first rooted in, 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 in your way, Christ. Our hope ultimately is rooted in in your promises, promises of God that you have made yes for us, Lord Jesus. Direct our hearts. God, expose our hypocrisy. God, humble us in our pride. God, soften us in our anger, Lord. Lead us in the way that we should go, God. Help us to bring our true hearts before you, God. Remove defensiveness and replace it with compassion, God. Remove divisiveness and and replace it with understanding. God, we need more conversation, not less. God, would you keep us from just siloing off into our disagreements? Would you lead us out into the wide spaces of your love? Would you lead us by your Holy Spirit? We pray for our country, God. We pray that you would establish it in your mercy, God. We pray, again, for another awakening to your love and salvation. We pray that there would be a movement of, of true discipleship in our in our land. But we pray that we would learn how to live as citizens of heaven and strangers on the earth, even as we are are, are citizens of this country, Lord. Show us the way, God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.